Let's pray together. Our God, we pray that you would come now and help us. Lord, it's like we're sitting before a feast because you're ready to feed us. Sitting before great drink because you're ready to give us drink. We need now from you an appetite. So cause us to hunger so that you might feed us and cause us to thirst that you might amply pour out to us your word and lead us through it to your son who is the living bread and the living water that if we eat and drink of him, we will never thirst again. So come and meet us, be faithful, and do all the work that is required in both the preaching and the hearing of your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Savmar Road, we are continuing in our series called Shadows. And as we're looking through these stories in the Old Testament and seeing Jesus emerge in these stories, I don't know if you've noticed, but there's sort of a pattern that sort of emerges from these various stories. Right? There's, there's sort of a, a theme, there's some common ingredients, no matter what story you're talking about. And, and as you look at these stories, what you'll find is that there's suffering and then there's glory. Right? Th those are two ingredients in all the stories. There's suffering that leads to glory or darkness that then gives way or is triumphed by light. There's death that rolls over that then leads to resurrection. That's sort of the pattern in all the stories. So, for example, last week we were looking at Abraham. And there was this great promise that God had given to Abraham. And then death sort of rolls in over that promise. Right? This suffering comes in because Abraham is told to take his son, his only son, whom he loves, Isaac, and offer him as a sacrifice. And there he is with a knife in his hand, ready to slaughter his own son. You can imagine the suffering in his heart. And just at the last moment, as death had seemed to roll in, it was done. Isaac was as good as dead. Suddenly there's relief. There's light. Do not harm the boy, the, the text says. And now this one who is as good as dead is brought back to life. There's resurrection. There's light. There's joy. There's glory. Suffering gives way to glory. And as you keep going through the stories, you're going to see that over and over again. Daniel is going to be thrown into the pit of lions. He's as good as dead. David is going to go up against a nine-foot giant. He's just a boy. He's good as dead. Jonah is going to be thrown into the heart of the sea to be swallowed up by a fish. He's as good as dead. And in each of these, you have suffering and death and darkness. But somehow Daniel's going to come out and David's going to triumph and Jonah's going to be spit out and suffering is going to lead to glory. Death is going to give way to resurrection. And the reason that these stories are so great is because this is how story works, right? This is how the best stories work. And I'm not even just talking about the Bible. I'm saying that these same ingredients are the same ingredients for any good story. Think about your favorite story, your favorite book, your favorite drama, your favorite movie. Whatever the plot is, you're going to find that there's death and there's resurrection. There's suffering and there's glory. Right? We're, we're in Philadelphia. So if I talk about a movie, we've got to talk about Rocky. Right? So if I talk about Rocky, and it doesn't matter which one. Right? There's six of them or, or 20 of them. Whatever it is, every one of them has the same script. My personal favorite is number four, where he's fighting the crazy Russian, right? If he dies, he dies, right? That, that one. That was probably the worst Russian accent you've ever heard. But in that one, the same script as everyone. Rocky Balboa, the Italian stallion, is the total underdog. Whether it's Apollo Creed or Mr. T or Ivan Drago, whatever it is, you know this guy's dead, he's done, he doesn't have a shot. Death rolls in, and somehow, 
Rocky runs 154 miles throughout Philadelphia. He trains hard. He triumphs. The city wins. It's glory, resurrection. I read a few months ago, I read the books, The Hunger Games, the whole trilogy. If you read The Hunger Games, it's Katniss Everdeen, this young little girl who is thrown into these gladiatorial games, forced to fight in The Hunger Games. She's got to fight for her life. And in the pages that ensue throughout the whole trilogy, it's darkness and bloodshed and, and horror and sadness and grief and death and, and all this darkness. If you read the pages, it's like it's pitch black. But then, spoiler alert, you get to the end and it's like light rolls in. The good guy gets the good girl, good triumphs over evil, there's a new land, there's babies being born, birds are chirping, suddenly all that darkness gives way to light. There's death and resurrection, there's suffering and then there's glory. It's in everything. For example, this afternoon you're going to watch the Eagles play the Giants, okay? Now, do you know what the single greatest NFL play of all time is? This is not, you know, subjective. This is objective evidence right now that I'm about to give you. The single greatest NFL play of all time, 58 million people voted that Deshaun Jackson's walk-off touchdown punt return against the Giants in what's been called the Miracle in the Meadowlands 2 is the greatest NFL play of all time. Now think about that for a second. There's punt returns for touchdowns all the time. What is it about that one that 58 million people said that was the best moment ever? It's because, if you remember, with eight minutes left in the fourth quarter, the Eagles were down by 21 points against the evil Giants. And in eight minutes, they not only scored 21 points, but the game-winning touchdown was Deshaun Jackson's walk-off punt return for a touchdown, which catapulted them into a win, which catapulted them into the playoffs. 58 million people said, you know what? What made that moment great was, there was they were done. It was over. And yet, when that death rolled over, there was glory that came out. Resurrection. This is the way that story works. Listen. The best stories work this way because the best story worked this way. This is the way God wired the whole thing to be. Because the greatest story worked this way. Death and resurrection. Suffering leading to glory. This is why Jesus, after his death and his resurrection, was walking with two of his disciples on the seven-mile road. And they don't know it's him, and they're distraught because they're convinced Jesus is dead. And Jesus rebukes them for not knowing what was going to happen. Rebukes them for not having put the pieces together. In fact, listen to this. This is Luke 24, verses 25 and 26. And he said to them, O oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Don't miss that, because there it is. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer and then enter into glory? Suffering, giving to glory. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Right? This verse is why we're doing this series called Shadows. Because Jesus was walking that road and told these two, you should have seen this coming. You should have known that it was going to be death and resurrection, suffering into glory. You should have seen this coming. He goes so far as to call them foolish and slow of heart to believe. 
And then he begins to show them all the stories, how it was pointing to himself. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was there, I would want to push back a little bit and say, Jesus, that sounds a bit harsh. You're calling them fools because they didn't know that death and resurrection was going to happen. I'd imagine that one of the disciples at one point would muster up the courage and say, Jesus, how are we supposed to know? How did you really expect us to know that you were going to save the world by dying and then rising again? How were we supposed to know that it was going to be death and then resurrection and then you would accomplish salvation? Where would we have seen that before? How would we have possibly known that salvation would come through suffering leading to glory? And I think with great patience, Jesus would have said to them, how are you supposed to know? Have you read the scriptures? How, how are you supposed to know? Have you read the stories? And then I'd like to think that Jesus would have taken them to the story that we're going to consider this morning. I think Jesus would have said to them, have you read Joseph? Have you, have you read that story? How are you supposed to know? Where have you seen this before? Have you read the story of Joseph? And I think he would have said, watch, let, let, let me show you how this works. And so maybe he would have opened the scriptures and opened it perhaps from memory and he would have taught them. And I think the first thing he would have showed them is, here, let's look at Joseph and his suffering. Here's the first thing I want you to see. Look at Joseph and his suffering. If you're going to see how all of this was pointing to me, getting you ready for me, start with Joseph and his suffering. Now, I don't want to assume that you know the story of Joseph and if you've read it before, I want to bring it up to you as a quick refresher. Joseph's star story starts in Genesis 37. Joseph's story goes till the end of the book in Genesis 50. So we're covering a large section of real estate today. We've got a lot of ground to cover. We sometimes spend 45 minutes on four verses. So we've got 13 chapters today. I will move through it as quickly as I can. His story starts in Genesis 37. And when you first meet Joseph, he's a 17-year-old boy. Just a little young guy, 17-year-old teenager, and he's one of 12 brothers. His father's name is Jacob. This is Abraham's son, Isaac, Isaac's son, Jacob. Jacob's got 12 sons, and Jacob somewhere missed the parenting class that said, look, if you've got more than one kid, you've got to treat them all the same, right? Parents, you know this is the cardinal rule of parenting. If you have more than one kid... You have to treat them the same. They, there can't be favoritism. You know that. That's just a cardinal rule of parenting. But it doesn't always work that way, right? So, for example, I remember sitting at Shibu's living room, and Shibu told me that he once asked Brenda, Brenda, which of the kids do you like more, the boy or the girl? And Brenda answered like you would expect any good mom to answer. I love my children completely the same, totally equal. And he said, good. You take the girl, I'll take the boy. Right? Now, I know he was sort of kidding, but that's the point, right? We all know, listen, no parent is allowed to love one more than the other. Jacob missed that class. Jacob loved one in a way that everybody knew who his prized possession was. He loved Joseph. That was his pride and his joy. In fact, listen to what it says in Genesis 37, verses 3 and 4. It says, now Israel loved, Israel's another name for Jacob. Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. So Jacob makes things worse in that not only is it obvious to everyone that he loves this kid more than the others, he gives to this boy a gift that he doesn't give to the others. 
right? So he parades Joseph out in this multicolored, that's where we get Joseph and the technicolored dream coat, right? This multicolored robe. And there's hints in the text even that this is some kind of robe of royalty. As if he's parading his son around saying, this is my prince over everyone else. Over you other 11 bums, this is the one that I really love. And you can imagine how that went over with his brothers, right? So these brothers hate him to begin with, and now this young boy is parading around in dad's perfect robe, and they're just fuming. If they could just get their hands on him, they'd, they'd show him. And, and that's exactly the opportunity they, they, that they get. They get to get their hands on him. In fact, this is what it says in 37 verses 18 and following. Joseph was sent by Jacob to go and check on the boys. Again, they have to do work. This one's sitting around the house with his coat on. And so dad sends him with a clipboard to say, I want to report back of how the boys are doing. And he goes from afar, 38 verse 18. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes the dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we'll say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we'll see what will become of his dreams. They just want to get a chance to get their hands on him, and now they get their chance. They conspire together and say, that's it. Let's see what happens with his dreams. We're going to kill this kid. One of the brothers, not very virtuous or noble, but just has this moment of goodness, and he says, there's no way we can do that. We can't shed our own brother's blood. So he somehow talks them off the ledge, and the best he can get them to bargain down to is, fine, we'll throw him in a pit and leave him there to die. So that's what they do. They throw him in a pit at the bottom of a well. And now here is Joseph, doesn't say a word, suffering from his hands of his brothers in the bottom of a well. And the brothers start talking to themselves, and they figure, what's the point of him withering and dying there? That's no profit to us. And just as providence, not luck, providence would have it, just as providence would have it, at that same moment, some merchants walk by. And they figure there's no point in him rotting down there at the bottom of the well. We might as well make a buck off him. So they lift him up out of the pit. They rip the robes off him, and they sell him for 20 pieces of silver. They rip his robes apart. They dip it in blood. They come up with a story of how a beast devoured their son, and they go home and tell dad what had happened. And so now here he is. Stripped of his robe, thrown into the bottom of a pit, abandoned by those who were supposed to love him, sold for some pieces of silver, separated from the father who loved him and the father that he had loved. His story picks up again in Genesis 39, and when you read, you find he's been sold into slavery and he's traded hands one to another till he finally winds up in Egypt. And he's actually put as the servant of an officer of Pharaoh. Pharaoh's got an officer named Potiphar. He ends up as a servant in his house. And when you read the story, here's what happens. This young man works hard. He's diligent. He's successful. It's almost like he's got the Midas touch. Everything he touches prospers and turns to gold. Everything he puts his mind to just blossoms all around him. And everyone notices what a good man he is. And if you're reading the story, it's almost like here you're ready to go finally. I mean, this guy has, has earned this. It's due to him, right? He's, he's been unjustly treated, separated from his dad, sold by his brothers, left to die. Finally, he's going to get what's coming to him. 
And listen, if you're of a mindset that sort of thinks that that's how the universe works, right? There's sort of karma or you put out enough good vibes and good things will come to you. That's how the universe will set things straight. Joseph's story is going to mess you up because he does nothing but good and it gets worse and worse for him. The, the more good he does, the worse it becomes. It was bad enough that he had been sold by his brothers. Bad enough that he had been left in a pit to die. But now things get worse. Look at Genesis 39, verse 6. It says, Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. That's the Bible's way of saying he's a stud. Joseph's a stud. And after a time, his, wife's, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. This lady is not playing around. This hussy is just coming out and saying, this is what I want. Come sleep with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house and has put me, put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you're his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And she spoke and as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. <clears throat> Here's the scene. Here's, here, he's a young, single stud who is successful in all that he does, handsome as can be. And, and you just think about how this narrative is presenting what a good guy this man is. You tell me what a young, successful, handsome man on TV, what any show, you can pick any show, a single, young, handsome guy who's successful, what's the script for him? He's going to score as many ladies as he can. That's, that's basically the whole plot for a young single man in any TV show. And, and here is this guy who's single, who's handsome, who's successful. And, and when I've read this story before, I've almost thought, you know what? Joseph had this one crazy moment where she attacked him, and he mustered up all that he could and got out. Thank God. That's not what the text says. Did you notice verse 10? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, What's she saying day after day? We've already been told, verse 7, lie with me. She doesn't have a lot of dialogue with Joseph. She's got one thing on her mind, and she keeps coming after him day after day after day. All the men who are honest in the room will tell you, it's one thing to be able to muster up the resolve to fight temptation in one crazy moment and get out with your life. It takes something all the more to have that same resolve day after day, after day, after day, when this lady is throwing herself at him, no strings attached, and he refuses to even be with her or lie beside her. And the text is just highlighting for you, this is a good man. And it sort of comes to a climax in a head, because in 39 verses 11 and following, she finally won't take his nose anymore. She finds the perfect time, and she basically throws herself at him lunges at him. He doesn't stick around to argue or to debate or to reason this out. He sprints for his life so fast that she grabs his shirt right off his back. And now, spurned and rejected and a bit ticked off, she figures she's going to get even. And she screams, rape! And the guards come in and she screams and explains to them, listen, that man had come in here, tried to make his advance on me. I screamed. He ran. Here he is, the shirt off his back. She explains the same thing to her husband later. And now, here is this man who had done nothing wrong. 
hated by his brothers, separated from his father whom he had loved, sold for some pieces of silver, thrown into a pit, now finds himself, after all these events and all this stuff, faithful to God, now thrown into a prison. Now he's suffering for a crime he didn't commit. He's paying for a punishment that he had nothing to do with. And I imagine that if Jesus was telling the disciples this story, I'd imagine that suddenly some things start to click. I'd imagine that they suddenly go, there's some parallels and patterns here, aren't there? Like when they recall how Joseph was hated by his own, not foreigners, not strangers, by his own, by the folks who were supposed to accept him and love him and protect him, how he was hated by his own, surely they must have thought of Jesus who couldn't even go into his own hometown without saying, a prophet's never welcome in his own home. Without being able to go into his own neighborhood without them wanting to throw him off a cliff in one of the Gospels, or stone him another, or finally get him. His own were the ones who hated him. Or when they thought of how these brothers were willing to sell their own brother for 20 pieces of silver, of course they must have thought of Judas who was willing to do it for just 10 more. The price of Jesus was just 10 more. That's all it took. Or when they remembered Joseph being stripped of his robe, surely their minds must have thought back to the soldiers sitting underneath the cross, gambling to see which one could keep the cloak that they had ripped off his back when they stripped him and hung him naked on the cross. When they thought of that little young boy screaming at the bottom of that well or perhaps weeping in his jail cell, crying out for a dad that had loved him and he had been separated from, surely they must have heard afresh in their ears Jesus screaming from the cross like an abandoned son, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or when they thought that in the midst of all of this that Joseph somehow remained innocent, that he was an innocent sufferer. He didn't raise his voice in protest. Surely they must have thought of the lamb who had been led to the slaughter without making a sound, who had done nothing wrong, who had been accused of crimes he did not commit, who at his trial, they had folks come in and testify, and they couldn't even get their testimonies to collaborate, and everybody knew they were making this stuff up. They couldn't find a charge to stick, and still... He paid for a crime he didn't commit. If the disciples were going to say, Jesus, we didn't know that suffering was going to be a part of your story. We didn't know that that's how God works. We didn't know where would we have known that that's how it happens. Or where would we have seen this before? I think Jesus would have said, oh foolish and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have written. Was it not that the Christ should suffer? Did you read Joseph? But thankfully, that's not where Joseph's story ends. Because thankfully, his story doesn't end with him in a pit. Because there's more to the story, right? Because what does that suffering lead to? But to glory. What does that suffering pay the wave to? It leads to glory. And here's the irony in the whole thing. The irony is rather than that suffering destroying him, it becomes the path to glory. 
It becomes the very road to glory. And so I think Jesus would have said, look, you, you've considered Joseph's suffering. Now think for a moment to Joseph's glory. Having considered his suffering, look at how that suffering led to glory. So here's the story. Joseph is now sitting at the bottom of a prison cell, rotting in prison for a crime he didn't commit, sold, and now things get even worse. He's in prison. And there, as a number of events would unfold, for the sake of time, I'll breeze through them quickly. He's got two inmates with him. They both have dreams. Joseph's a dreamer. He's in the right spot. He interprets their dreams for them. One is released in three days, just like he said. One is executed in three days, just like he says. The one who's released, he says, listen, remember this thing that I just did for you, how I told you what was going to happen, how it came true. Would you please whisper that into Pharaoh's ear? This guy goes, absolutely. He's totally grateful to Joseph. He leaves. He never thinks about Joseph again. The text tells us two years pass. Two years pass while he's sitting there in prison more time for a crime he didn't commit. Until finally one day, two years later, Pharaoh himself, the ruler of Egypt, has a dream that no one can interpret. And as the palace is talking about this dream that no one can interpret, finally this man from prison remembers that there's someone who can. He whispers into Pharaoh's ear about Joseph and what he had done. Joseph is summoned to the Pharaoh. He's clean-shaven, presented nice so that he can finally appear before the Pharaoh. And Pharaoh tells him his dream. And here's the summary of it. Joseph interprets and says to him, here's what's going to happen. You're going to have seven years of great abundance in this land. Food like this land has never had before. But following those seven years is going to be seven years of famine where it destroys the land like nothing has ever done it before. And Pharaoh hears of this dream. And so wise Joseph comes and says, listen, this is what you need to do. You need to use these seven years of abundance to store food for the land so that you can withstand the seven years of famine. Pharaoh hears this. It's a suggestion no one else has brought. He sees Joseph's wisdom. And then this is what the text says in 41 verses 39 and following. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen. There's his royal robe and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot, and they called out before him, Bow the knee! Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Here's the point. You, you know what this is in the story? This is the moment where death had rolled in, and this is when Rocky knocks out Ivan Drago. This is when Katniss overcomes the Hunger Games. This is Deshaun Jackson crossing the plane of the touchdown. Because this moment is the moment where Joseph goes from being in the depths and in the pits to exalted to the highest place in the land. He is essentially seated at the right hand of the throne. And now before him all bow. Did you hear that? Verse 43, and they called out before him, bow the knee, so that wherever his chariot went, people bowed down to Joseph. 
And as if the text wants to sweeten the irony, it lets you know this famine doesn't just go throughout Egypt, it goes throughout all the known earth at the time. And guess who wanders in to try and get some food? But the ten brothers who had sold them. And guess what happens, except they too have to bow. Genesis 42.6 says this, And Joseph's brothers came, they didn't recognize him, and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. You know what that verse might as well say? It might as well say, And Joseph's dream came true. That's, that's essentially what it says, that through this suffering, rather than destroying him, became the very means by which his dream came true. That the highest glory imaginable came through the path of the worst suffering imaginable. That this suffering, rather than destroying him, had exalted him to the highest place at the right hand of the throne so that all bowed before him. Now, if Jesus were telling this story to his disciples, I'd imagine that some things started to click for them. And I'd imagine that suddenly they began to see there's some parallels and patterns here, aren't they? Like Joseph seemed as good as dead, didn't he? And yet he rose from the depths to the highest place. And how could they not put that together while they're sitting next to Jesus who had risen from the dead? who had been buried under the earth and now had come back alive and risen and who in just a few days would ascend before their very eyes to the highest place imaginable so that he vanished from their sight as he went up into the heavens. Or when they pictured Joseph sitting before Pharaoh, could they not have suddenly thought to themselves and seen Jesus sitting at the right hand of the throne of God in majesty and in power? Surely they must have put these things together that, yes, there was suffering. There was betrayal, and he was abandoned, and he was sold, and he was mocked, and he was beaten, and he was stripped, and he was crucified, and he was killed. But that suffering, rather than destroy him, became the very path to glory. For he rose again, and he ascended in power and majesty and life, and he conquered over death, and he defeated sin, and he triumphed over Satan, and nothing could get him ever again. In fact, this is exactly how Paul, the apostle, would summarize the whole gospel. He says, you want to know what this whole thing is about? It's suffering leading to glory. He says that in Philippians 2. Let me read this for you and see if you see it. He says in Philippians 2 verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself, here suffering, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. But what does that suffering lead to? Verse 9, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, and every t on heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see that? There's suffering. He's obedient even unto death. But what does it lead to? 
It leads to a name that is higher than every other name under heaven. It leads to one day every knee is going to bow. If some of the people in Egypt bowed before Egypt, before Joseph, what about this one before every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord? If the disciples were going to say to Jesus, Jesus, we didn't know that suffering was going to lead to glory. How are we supposed to know that that's how God works? Where would we have possibly seen that before? I think Jesus would have said, have you ever read Joseph's story? Because what else do you see but suffering leading to glory? But here's the last thing. It's not just suffering, and it's not even just glory, because what does that suffering through glory accomplish but salvation? People are saved because of that suffering that led to glory. And here's the third thing I think Jesus would have pointed to them. I think Jesus would have said, you've considered Joseph's suffering, and you've considered Joseph's glory. Now, would you look at what all of this accomplished and see Joseph the Savior? Would you see Joseph the Savior? Because that's essentially what Joseph becomes. If you're reading Genesis, God brings forth this man to be a Savior. That's exactly what he is. God raises up this man to be a savior. Everyone was going to perish, except that Joseph was there at just the right time to do what needed to be done. Look at Genesis 41, verses 56. This is what it says. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for this famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt, to Joseph, to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. Here's what that's saying. That's saying that as he went through that suffering and was exalted to glory, God positioned him to be a savior for all people. Do you see that? It's not even just the people in Egypt. It says all the earth, every known place at that time, came to Joseph so that they might have bread, so that they might live. They came to this savior that they might eat bread so that they might not die, but live. All the earth comes to him for bread to live. And eventually, as I hinted before, even his brothers show up. And if, and if this were a movie, listen, this is the point where you'd be saying, look, this kid was bullied all those years. Now he's finally risen to power. He's a stud. He's powerful and he's successful. He's going to let him have it. Right? This is the moment in any movie you're waiting for where finally these guys are going to get what's coming to them. And yet, you know the story. He uses his power and his position to not condemn them as he ought and could and should, but to forgive them and moreover, to bless them. Listen to this in 45, and then we'll close. He sees his brothers, he plays sort of this cat and mouse game with them because they don't recognize him right away, and then he finally can't hold it anymore. He reveals who he is. 45 verse 1, then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it. And the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. 
And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Verse 10. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. Then I will provide for you. For there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. Here's what the text is saying. He uses his power to bless and forgive the same ones that had hurt and destroyed him. If you keep reading in the story, he foots the bill for them to go from Egypt back to their land to collect every last thing that they owned. All their family, all their possessions, bring it back. He not only forgives them, he provides for them homes in Egypt. Not just in Egypt, in the best parts of Egypt. He gives them the choicest lands with the choicest homes to live the choicest, most perfect lives. He has the power to destroy them and he saves them. I want you to hear that again. He has the power to and every reason to destroy them and he saves them instead. And he assures them that what they had intended for evil, God had purposed all the while for good. What they had thought to do with their sin, God had chosen to do with their sin for good. They had a meaning. What they meant to do for evil, God had a separate meaning for. He meant to do good. And now, Sabmah wrote, if Jesus was sitting with his disciples, telling them this story, I'd imagine that suddenly some things start to click again. And I imagine that they'd say to themselves, there's some parallels and patterns here, aren't there? That if this Joseph provided bread for all the earth, how much more the better Joseph who came and said, I am the living bread, bread from heaven, that whoever eats of me shall live forever. And not just to one quarter of the world, but to all the earth, he becomes a savior. And if this Joseph had been willing to forgive the very ones who had hurt him, how much more would they have recalled the better Joseph, who even while on the cross screams out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, and pardons his murderers, pardons those who had abandoned him and betrayed him. If this one Joseph used his power to forgive and bless those who had hurt him, how much more the better Joseph, who had every power and every reason to destroy and chooses to rescue and save instead. And if God had purpose to use the sin of these brothers to bring about a savior, how much more had God planned and predestined to use every sin to bring about a savior for the earth? How much more if Joseph's brother's acts were not outside of God's sovereign providence? How much more the events that led to Jesus, the Savior of the earth, were also part of God's plan and providence? So much so that one day the apostles are preaching in Acts 2, and they say to all who would hear, listen to this in Acts 2, verse 22, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works, and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. They go on to say the same thing in 4, in Acts 4. They say, you know who killed him? 
you killed him, and Pilate killed him, and Judas betrayed him, and, and the Roman soldiers crucified him. But, but you know, behind all of that, all of this was predestined by God. And God purposed to use even this thing that you meant for incredible evil, God meant all the while for good. And while you thought you were bringing the Son of God to death, God was rolling out resurrection and glory and salvation. Your evil has not triumphed. He has been purposing all the while to bring about a savior for all the earth, even through your sin. So that if the disciples were going to say to Jesus, Jesus, where would we have possibly known that suffering would give way to glory and lead to salvation? Where would we have known that God works that way? Where would we have ever seen that before? I think with a smile, Jesus would have said, have you read Joseph? Have you read Joseph? Do you not see that all the scriptures testify to me? So Seven Mile Road, what are you going to do with this story? What are you going to do with Joseph's story as it is invited to shape your own story? Right? Maybe there's parts of this story that you feel like you really identify with. Maybe you're in a season where you feel like him in a pit at the bottom, that's what my life looks like right now. And maybe you're going through a season of unspeakable suffering where you feel like wronged, accused, that's, that's exactly what my narrative looks like right now. It feels like I'm at the bottom of a pit and God is absent or unaware. And it feels like I've tried to do nothing but good and yet evil keeps coming. And perhaps the story of Joseph would shout to you what it looks like to have a God who not only is aware and not only is present, but a God who made himself acquainted with suffering in ways you couldn't imagine. Joseph would never be able to say to God, you don't know what it's like to be betrayed. Because Jesus would say back, yes, I do. Joseph would never be able to say, you don't know what it's like to be sold out by people who should love you. And Jesus would be able to say back, yes, I do. You don't know what it's like to be separated from someone I love. And Jesus would be able to say back, yes, I do. More than you could possibly imagine. You don't know what it's like to do right and receive wrong. And Jesus would say back, I know better than you could possibly imagine. And Joseph's story shouts to you, you have a God who's not absent or unaware, but is closer to your suffering than you could possibly imagine. And a God who says, listen, what they had intended for evil, I am working out for good. I did it for Joseph. I did it in Jesus. I'm doing the same thing in your life as well. What has been intended for evil, God is redeeming for good. Or maybe you're in a place where you feel like you know what it's like, where you've been wronged by some folks, and you're now standing at the precipice of deciding, how are you going to respond? And maybe Joseph's story is going to come and shape your response. Are you going to use your power and your resources to condemn and crush those who have hurt you, though you have every right and reason to do so? or to bless those who had persecuted you, like Jesus said, and to pray for your enemies who have hurt you, like Jesus said, like Jesus modeled. He, he not, doesn't just forgive them, he provides for them. He says, you, your kids, your kids' kids, everything you have, it's on me now, and foots the bill for it all. And, and you have a father in the heavens who has done the same thing, who has responded to your every sin 
by providing for you more than you could possibly imagine and more than you have ever deserved. There's a bunch in Joseph's story that you might be able to identify with, but before that and first and foremost, here's the point. Before you do any of those things, the first thing you've got to see is this is more than just how are you to respond towards God. This is look at what God has done for you. This is God the Son came in the flesh and suffered. But that suffering didn't destroy him. It led to glory. And that glory accomplished salvation for you. So that now he is the one seated at the right hand of the throne of God in a position of power and using his every resource to bless you who hurt him. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, we ask that you would do the same thing now in our hearts that you do to those two men. That even as you rebuked them and told them that they were foolish and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have written, was it not evident that the Christ should suffer and after these things enter into glory? But as they heard those words, their hearts were cut and the scriptures say their hearts burned within themselves as you opened the scriptures to them. We'd ask for the same thing to happen in our hearts even now. That as we see the story of Jesus unfolded, even in the story of Joseph, our hearts would burn within us as we see the Christ. We pray that you would give us eyes to see him today, betrayed for us, sold for some coins for us, abandoned for us, left alone for us, separated from a father who loved him and he loved for us brought down into the depths for us. But help us also to see that you have now highly exalted Jesus and given him the name above every name so that every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and that this God seated at the right hand of the Father now uses his power and his resources to forgive and bless us. Come and shape us by these words we ask in Jesus' name.